Are we going to do a full vocal and physical warm up before we start? You've not done one already. I did one this morning. I'm so before the photo shoot. <laughs> I remember my uh, a teacher from our youth theatre when I was a kid, yeah. and he taught us, um, tell your men to drop their guns, Ming, tell your men to drop their guns, Ming, from Flash Gordon. And that has stayed with me ever that, since. Is that still your vocal warm-up? Yeah, tell your men to drop their guns, Ming. It's not easy to say. It's not. It's a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And are we allowed to swear? Oh, yes. I'd almost <laughs> encourage it. <laughs> are we all good? We're all, we're all running, so we'll... Start properly. I've got a theme tune and everything. It's really. Have cool. you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it you singing? <laughs> <laughs> this is the David Tennant show. This is the oh, David Tennant show. It should be. I wish it was. I could just get you to do that recorder. We could just use yeah, that yeah. on all the other ones. Okay, I'm actually. more than happy to I'd do like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> David Tennant does a podcast with Michael Sheen. Michael, hello. Hello. Um, we have just come, uh, you and I, from a publicity photo shoot yes. for Good Omens, which is yeah. a show we're doing, during which we had to sort of dress up in clothes and have a photograph yeah. taken, kind of as ourselves. Yeah. I don't think I'm talking out of school when I say that both of us find that mm. not our favourite part no. of the job of acting. We haven't talked about this until now, so this is quite <laughs> fun. Um, can I ask you, am I the grumpiest person you've ever seen at a photo shoot? Or no. have you seen grumpier people? Oh, no, I've seen grumpier people. You have? Yeah. Okay. I don't think you're that grumpy. I think you're an honest version of how I'm feeling. I wanted to kill everyone, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> That's what exactly what's going on in my head. Yeah. But because I could see how annoyed you were at times, it made me why is become it so... a sort of performing monkey and go, why? no, everything's great, everything's fine. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I no, was there were times no, when I was you aware. Were right. It was excruciating. No, but I but I was aware at certain moments that I was totally leaving you to pick up the pieces. <laughs> I was just refusing to answer certain things. I was yeah. like a child, yeah. like just not answering. And then you were very nicely, because you're a lovely person, saying something just to, so that there wasn't utter silence. But I wasn't, but usually I'm you in that situation. Are you I, really? I, 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 that's why, I mean, I think we're very similar about it. I'm asking you as a means of therapy for myself, mm. why is that bit of the job so excruciating? Because it sort of strips away a lot of the stuff that allows us to feel better about ourselves. Right. So it strips away all the pretense of artistry. Yeah. It's just, monkey, fucking perform, <laughs> monkey. <laughs> Wear this, monkey. Yeah. And, like, and make this face. Yeah. And it's all that stuff that you constantly, I think, resist. Mm. Like cheap stupid rubbish things <laughs> that you like it reduces acting to oh make a funny face well because it's not acting that. though is no, it because you're not in character you're you're you yeah. or some and, version and then when you realize oh you, there, there's someone adjusting your shirt and everything in order to show the watch yeah because <laughs> like, they've what? got it for free yeah and like, i what i so i'm just a fucking monkey prostitute that's all i am <laughs> and it does reduce it and it strips away all the pretends you can't be like mm, this is my motivation yeah you know there's so is that. it that it actually it makes you realize what your job normally is because all the artifice is drained yeah. away well, possibly an aspect of it each time i kind of go how did i let this happen and it's because you have to people don't allow you to not publicize stuff but it's part of the yeah, part of yeah. it you want people to watch it contractually it's yeah. part of it apart from anything else yeah and of course you want people to watch what you're doing and yeah. all the rest of it but yeah, there's something about when photographers, and I'm not saying this was the case today. No, not necessarily um, saying that. When people say, look, I'm, you know, let's do something a bit fun with this. Yeah. And I'm thinking, there is nothing yeah. you can do yeah. that will make this fun for me. Yeah. Nothing. Everything so we're already down. going down a bad road now. Yeah. Because I know that we're going to get to a point where you're wanting something fun to happen. I'm not going to be able to give it to you. You're going to get annoyed. I'm going to get even more grumpy. And it just goes really badly. But that, let's just play. Let's yeah. just play yeah, with this. Yeah, yeah. No, the, I can't the, play. The, the line I hate is one one that's a little bit warmer. <laughs> a little a little suggestion of a smile. <laughs> Fuck off. Now I hate you. <laughs> now the last thing I want to do is smile. And it's not, you know, they, everyone's in that room is just doing their job. Oh, I know, everyone is and they're lovely. Yeah. It's always lovely yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. The loveliest people yeah. do that, that stuff. And, and that, again, brings out the, the devil in me a little yeah. bit because everyone's so nice. But you don't do that on set in character. Is that because you're not able to hide behind? Because yeah. even, like, on a talk show, mm. you know, one has a sort of character that one assumes. Yes, I think you're right. I think 
it's that thing that Oscar Wilde said, wouldn't it? Like, give a man a mask and he'll show you his true face. Yeah. If you've got the mask on, then it sort of frees you up somehow. It liberates yeah. you to do whatever. But without that mask on, oh, then I just get really self-conscious. Mm. Being asked to do anything, I resent everything. Yes. Could you just laugh, you know, be a bit laughing? Yeah. No, no, I don't feel like laughing. And then it becomes weirdly, everything feels like acting. Then. And I really hate that feel of being inauthentic. But what we do is that. that yes. is, it is inauthentic, isn't it? Really? But you are an actor, I think, who's known for sort of subsuming yourself within a character. Michael gets lost. Yeah. Are you sort of an old-fashioned character actor in that sense, <laughs> do you think? So there's two different ways of answering this. One would be the, uh, the well, I think the thing I find exciting about acting is the challenge of it, is yeah. the, you know, transforming. Yeah. That's what acting is for yeah. me, blah, blah, blah. The other way of answering it is the deeply dark psychological thing of I just don't like myself very much. <laughs> and so if I could be someone else and yeah. totally lose myself in someone else, then that somehow, you know is sort of self-medicating. Well, there's an, there's an argument that's what acting always is. Isn't yeah, it? Like I guess so. away from yourself. Oh, I think we're more similar than I even knew. <laughs> um, do you, are, you, are you a good judge of when you're being good, do you think? I have Demon Michael and Angel Michael. So Demon Michael thinks that Michael's being very good when he's being, you know, giving it a bit of yeah. and fireworks and bells and whistles. Yeah. Oh, this is very good. And then sort of Angel Michael is like, oh, that cost a bit. That was a bit uncomfortable. That was, oh, that was... That was hard, right. and therefore that was good. I've come over the years, I think, now to recognise a feeling that is a very unpleasant feeling, and to, but to recognise that that is the feeling of work that is happening that is good, that has, that has value, as opposed to the other feeling, which is I'm really enjoying this and I know I'm being good. Right. That's, more, that's kind of a more technical thing, I think. Like it, That's more showy... Like, oh, people will be a bit sort of dazzled by this kind of thing, and I'm enjoying the fact that that's happening. I've come to not trust that. I've come to, you know, recognise that as being, oh, be careful, you're in dangerous territory now. Right. And then this other thing, which is um, because it's because you're vulnerable, mm. and no one likes feeling vulnerable, and so the feeling of it is very uncomfortable in the moment. It's not. It's about a million miles away from the other thing, which is I'm actually enjoying this in the moment. I always remember doing, um, I was doing Look Back in Anger at the National Theatre in 99 and I'd already done it in Manchester at the Royal Exchange Theatre and it had been quite a successful production up in Manchester and it was the same director, different cast but same director and I remember starting to do previews at the National, it was at the Littleton, Fiona Shaw was doing a play at the National at the time and <clears throat> she came to see it and I thought I'd been particularly good that <laughs> night, you know, as you know. The character of, of, of Jimmy Porter has these long speeches and, yeah. you know, you can really, you can be quite fireworks yeah. with it and all the rest of it. And I remember seeing Fiona Shaw the next day as I came in to the theatre, you know, through the stage door, going off to get ready to do the performance that night. And I thought, I wonder if she, wonder if she's going to come and say something to me. Because I had a lot of respect for Fiona Shaw. And, uh, and she came over and she said, oh, I, I, you know, I saw, the, I saw the play last night. And um, uh, just be careful you don't enjoy yourself too much. And it was the single greatest note I've ever been given in my life. I am so thankful. I mean, that's not all she said. She was very, she's lovely and she yeah. said that. But that's the thing I've remembered. She said, just be careful you don't enjoy it. Enjoy it too much. And she was absolutely bang on. Because I was. I was enjoying it. Right. And I'd, mo I'd moved away from what I'd had in the, the, the first time I did it, which was that it was really uncomfortable. The feeling of, um, of having the character of um, Jimmy's wife, uh, Alison, Alison who, who, who is silent for most, you know, a lot of it, but the idea that somehow she is attacking him and he has to defend himself and all that stuff. So rather than playing a character who is always on the front foot, uh, the, the thing that opened that play and that part for me was that he's always on the back foot. He always feels like he's being attacked and he has to defend himself. So it meant that it, was all, it always felt painful and uncomfortable and vulnerable and yeah. and I had got to the point where I'd started enjoying that a little too much rather than the other stuff and she just put me back on the right path with that you're talking about that now like you're terribly grateful that she said it mm. but in that moment when you're in previews and you're vulnerable and you're scared mm. were you a bit like fuck you Fiona Shaw <laughs> I, no I didn't in any way feel angry I felt a little bit um, deflated I mean it came as a surprise I really thought this amazing actress is going to come and say oh that was wonderful right. This is a painfully familiar feeling that I've had over the years, I have to say. I mean, when I went to drama school first, 
I had, you know, done school plays back in Wales and then I joined a youth theatre and I'd done the plays there and National Youth Theatre of Wales and all this kind of stuff. And I'd become quite a, you know, big fish in a little pond, really. But then when I went to drama school... I thought, oh my goodness, you know, everyone's going to be so much better than me and I'm going to I'm going to really struggle or whatever. And then I got there and and I was like, oh no, I'm I can hold my own definitely. And then and then I got very big for my boots. And I remember by the time we got oh. our first public production, so it was in our second year and we were going to do Oedipus. And uh, and I thought, well, clearly I'm going to be cast as Oedipus and I will then give my performance as Oedipus and this is the first time the public, the general public will be able to watch the emergence of Britain, if not the world's greatest actor. And uh, they will see my performance as Oedipus, which Olivier had done, uh, you know, like I'd read, you know, so all of that stuff. So it was in there as a kind of an iconic thing and I thought, right, this is it. I'm going to give my performance. I will be carried shoulder high through the streets of London with flaming torches and people will anoint me as the greatest thing ever. And so I was cast as Oedipus, of course. Right. Uh, and we rehearsed it and I was like, oh, I'm being terribly good in this. <laughs> and then we came to the performance and I did, I thought, the best work I'd ever done up until that point. And precisely nothing happened. Right. Nobody gave a shit. There was no like, oh my God, this is amazing. And there was nothing. You know, other teachers, the, the, the acting teachers at, at the college would come and see it and they'd say, yeah, uh, I think, you know, you've got to be careful in uh, in the second half, your voice is... Blah, blah. I was like, but why aren't you telling me I'm the greatest actor you've ever seen? And I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't, and I had a sort of breakdown. I ended up leaving college for a while and uh, I just lost all confidence and nothing made sense to me. I, I couldn't understand it. And and so I just sort of fell apart. And I ended up coming back into drama school on a Saturday morning because one of the acting teachers used to do classes for professional actors, really, not people who were at college, on a Saturday morning. And I ended up coming back and just sitting at the back of those classes on a Saturday morning and just watching and, and listening. And then slowly, eventually, I came back to drama school and I totally changed my whole approach to everything. And it then became about not working it out beforehand not having any ideas about it just listening to what people i mean all the basics about acting listen to people react to what they're doing you know take risks in that way don't work it out beforehand and slowly built it back up again that's quite a journey yeah that was a it was a big deal for me that so so you went to drama school thinking i'm a little scrubber from wales i don't have any right to be here and you went in the space of what two is that a year, two years to that point? That was uh, within a year and a half, right. probably. Yeah. You'd gone from thinking, I've yeah. no right to be here, to thinking, I'm the king of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So do you think it even it gets harder as you get older? Because you, you've got more defences up. You've got more to lose as a human being. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's, it's, it's sort of double-edged, isn't it? Yeah. On the one hand, you've got more experience. Like I, I feel now like, um, on the one hand, I sort of... I. I you know, I recognise the feeling of when I'm doing good work or the, or the, or the rich area to go out. You know, my instincts are, are stronger and better now. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, I remember feeling stage fright for the first time. I mean, not just nerves before going on, right. but actually being on stage and it hitting you. Oh, and yes. I mean, I, I remember I did a play with um, Ian Holm, uh, a play called Moonlight. It was a, a Harold Pinter play and it was the first full-length play in 30 years or something, and it was Ian Holmes' return to the stage after 30 years. And he had, the last time he was on stage, he'd been doing The Iceman Cometh. Yes. And he'd come off uh, at uh, the interval, and then the uh, the stage manager came to give him his beginner's call for the second half, and they found him hiding under the bed in his dressing room, and he didn't come out, and he never went on stage again for 30 years. Yeah. Or Olivier saying to Frank Finley when they were doing Othello on stage, I'm sorry to ask you this, love, but um, could you not look me in the eye when we're on stage? Because he started to get terrible stage fright. And you think, this is Lawrence Olivier. Like yeah. somehow, rationally speaking, he was the, known as the greatest actor of his year. Why, what's he scared of? Yeah. But it doesn't work like that. And I, w- I remember being on stage at the National. We were doing a, a, a modern version, a contemporary version of uh, the, the government inspector, the Gogol play. So mm-hmm. David Farr, wonderful writer, director. And it was his version of the government inspector. And I was playing the the young guy who sort of essentially cons everyone into thinking that he's some government official when in fact he's just an ass. And this was a sort of updated version. I was a sort of estate agent and people thought I was a UN inspector. 
Anyway, there was this one scene where my character sits on the edge of the bed in his hotel room and just speaks to the audience. No one else on stage, and it's just this long speech. It was our first preview that night, and we were doing a rehearsal in the rehearsal room that afternoon, and uh, and we rehearsed that scene. And David said, oh, that line two-thirds of the way through the speech, uh, I don't think that's working. Let's just cut that. And I said, you know what? Let me try something tonight in front of an audience. And if it gets a laugh, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't, we'll get rid of it then. But let's see how it plays with an audience. And he was like, fine. So come to the performance, first preview in front of an audience, gets to that point, no one else on stage, just me sitting there. I get to that point in the speech. I do the line. I did something, I can't remember what, and it got a laugh. And I remember mentally thinking, ah, good, so we'll keep that line. And then I just had no idea what Uh. came next. Nothing. Now, in days gone by, you know, I had dried on stage, I'd forgotten the lines. You just get through it. Or someone else is there, or you get... Whatever it is, you get through it. There was nobody else on stage with me. It was our first preview. There was no prompter. There was nothing. And And I can't remember how it worked, whether I tried to think of what came next and just really couldn't remember, or went... No one can help me. And then that made it even worse. But my experience was sitting there looking at the audience and I started to feel like what I imagine drowning feels like. Mm. I just remember like my brain scrabbling to look for what the next line was and then the fear happening and my heart beating oh. and then thinking, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And no one's going to help me. And no one's gonna... And then it just felt like letting go and just drifting off. And somewhere in my head it went, eventually someone will just come on stage and take me away. And this will end. This is my Ian Holm moment. Yeah. And I just remember like drifting off like that and and it's starting to go a bit dark. I couldn't see, I couldn't hear. My heart was just beating and beating. And then it's like everything speeded up again. And then the line came out. Now, I don't know how long that took. It felt like forever. And I suppose the biggest problem was once I'd had that, yeah. there was always the possibility of it oh, in my mind. Yeah. And that's when the real fear started. Yeah. And that, And from that day on, Acting changed for me uh, on stage where there was always, uh, there would be moments where I would get that real fear again and I'd never had it before. Oh, I absolutely recognise that. Really? Have you had that as well? And I've had moments, I've had moments where I'm going through the motions on stage and in my head I'm composing the speech I'm about to make to the audience (laughs) about the fact that I can't do this anymore and I'm so sorry you've come all this way. Uh, I'm just going to go lie down now and probably talk myself because this is... Uh, yeah. I, I can I can no longer continue. Yeah. Yes, either right at the start of a run, when everything's new and your brain hasn't, the synapses aren't quite mm-hmm. firing, or it's quite far into a run, when you've somehow relaxed yeah. and you just relax a little bit too much and you suddenly, you almost wake up in the middle of a performance going, yeah. where am I? Where yeah. am I? What am I doing? Yeah. Or if you've been doing it long enough that you don't have to think about the lines. Yeah, yeah, You, know, you yeah. don't have to think, right, what's the next line? You just do it. And then for some reason, yes. you think about it. Yes. Something happens and you go, what's the next line? Oh, my God, I don't I don't know what the next line is. I don't know what the next line It's coming. And the cue is coming. And uh, uh, and, you yeah. think, uh, and then the, and then your heart, yeah. then it becomes a physical sensation. And the only thing you can do is just breathe and relax because you know because then it will come. Yeah. But and of just course, trust that it, it'll that's be totally counterintuitive in that moment. Yeah. When you were a kid in Newport, is this what you thought 50 would look like? Is this what you... <laughs> I don't Or did you just ever, imagine you would ever get there? I just never so thought remote. about it. Yeah, yeah, I never... I mean, I, I, my daughter is exactly the same age difference from me as I am to my father. Right. So, as in, whatever age my daughter is, when I think about when I was that age, my dad was the same age as I am now. Right. You know I mean? so, yes, yes, yes. so, you know, my daughter's now 19. She's about to become 20. Um, so when I was her age, I was in my second year of drama school. So when I think about my dad then, I mean, he was an old man <laughs> as far as I was concerned. <laughs> Life had, was over. Right. Um, and so, and I think, wow, that's that's me now to my daughter. <laughs> wow, I'm, yeah, that's, that's crazy. So, you know, yeah, 50, I never... I mean, 40 is wasteland yeah. as far as I was concerned, you know, let alone 50. God. Yeah. The idea that, you know, when you watch adverts and stuff and it says, you know, for anyone over the age of 50, oh, no, I'm oh, in yes. that block now. And you're in the top, when there's, when yeah. there's, which age band do you fall into? And you're now in the top one. Yeah. Yeah. There's 50 to death. Yeah, that's it. I'm in the 50 to death bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, boy. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a big deal, isn't it? 
And you, but that it's interesting you you, you refer to your parents because you've sort of been around the world and are now interested in going back to Wales in a way that, yeah, yeah. Is, is that to do with hitting a certain age, or is that to do with? I mean, I'm having sure been away for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure it is to do with, you know, or there's a big connection to an age thing. But it doesn't. My experience of it hasn't been like that. My experience of it is that you know the way my life has gone yeah. has got me to a point where I've become more interested in certain things, and that has brought me kind of almost um, inevitably back home. Mm. But then you know, I think about things like um, uh, one of the one of the big formative. Um, productions that I did when I was younger was Pier Gint. Um, and the story of Pier Gint is of a young man who goes off around the world and eventually comes back home again. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I was I was very aware of the kind of cyclic nature of that story. And, and you know, my, one of my favourite pieces of poetry is um, the T.S. Eliot uh, uh, poem, which uh, says, you know, and, and um, we shall not cease from exploring. And the end of all our, uh, I can't remember the exact words now, but it's essentially about going, coming back to where you started and knowing the place for the first time. And now that, that's something that has resonated for me for years and years and years without me ever thinking, oh, and therefore mm. I will end up, of course, going home again. <laughs> but mm. it seems obvious now, you know, that... Um, that there's something about that that has spoken to me very much. And I never thought, I mean, I love where I come from. I love my home, Wales, Port Albert. I've always felt a strong sense of connection to place, even though I've gone off and lived in other places. And, you know, I, I was based in LA for many years because my daughter grew up there. Um, but my but my home has always been Wales uh, and particularly Port Albert. And, um, but the thought of going back and living there, I mean, that never occurred to me. Um, And then it just... There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Sort of became the only thing at a certain point. It became the obvious, logical thing to do. And um, uh, Was there, was and there so, something that happened that made you think, I, I need to be? I mean, a number of things, really. I... I I'd, I'd never felt comfortable being away from home. I mean, not necessarily Wales, because, I mean, I moved from Wales to London to go to drama school, and, uh-huh. you know, but being in Britain was, was always uh, something that I'd, I never felt comfortable not being in right. Britain. Um, uh, and like Could I said, you probably, you must have lived in America almost as much as you've lived in the UK. Okay, it was, well, I so a close balance. my daughter was three when uh, uh, Kate and I, my, uh, my daughter's mother, and I broke up, um, and she's now nearly 20. So, you know, 17 years, yeah. I guess, okay. off and on, yeah. being sort of based over there. And it never felt like home. It never felt, you know, for the first few years, it, it literally felt like I was on holiday the whole time. Right. And then after that, it felt like, oh, I, I'm, I always felt like I had my hands tied behind my back a little bit. Right. Um, and certainly in terms of career stuff, like I had to start again. When I first went to live over there, I, I was an up-and-coming theatre actor, and no one gave a shit about that. <laughs> this is in Los Angeles. This is in yeah. Los Angeles, yeah. You might have been better going to New York. I yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember going to auditions for things in L.A., going up for Computer Guy in Alien vs. Predator, right. one scene, two lines, and really caring about whether yeah. I got it and thinking, you know what, I could be playing Hamlet in yeah. Britain. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. So I had to sort of start from scratch kind of over there. And, I, you know, and things went well, ultimately, mm-hmm. and, you know, I did very well. But that, in, in a way, because I had success over there, that kind of made it look like everything was going really well. And it, career-wise, it was going very well. But 
but I, I was I was very unhappy really over there. For, you know, there was a big part of me that was very unhappy because I really missed being at home. I miss, right. you know, my two best mates, my two best friends in Britain, both live in in Brighton and Hove with their families, and there's just years that I didn't get to spend time with them. Mm. You know, it's just years and years of of essentially just living a fairly kind of solitary existence over there, and um and and you know and and uh, and, and just not. You know, not being able to talk about what was on telly last night. I mean, I know right. these things sound sort of trivial, but they're really important. Mm. They've become really important to me, I've realised. The, the, I'm very tribal in that respect, I yeah. think. I, I, the things that really matter to me on a really deep kind of emotional level and psychological level, I think are feeling like I'm part of a group, that I'm, that I'm, you know, that we're bonded and connected in ways that are to do with who we are as a community. And, and there's, you know some what seem quite superficial, trivial aspects of that, but they're not. They're signifiers of something much deeper. So being able to talk about Bodyguard yeah. that was on TV last night yeah. or whatever, you know, like because I was back in Britain when that was on and I was really affected by that. It was, it hadn't, I, hadn't, I, I realised that I, it hadn't been since I was a kid, really, that I'd watched a programme on TV and then been able to talk about it the next day with people in a way that was like, we're all part, we're, this has brought us together. Right. Um, and like sporting events, like going to watch football or whatever it might be, that thing of all coming together and, and experiencing something together and feeling kind of bonded by it. And I wasn't having that in L.A. Yeah. I wasn't having that in America. I, I really, really missed that. And so as time went on and it got to the point where my daughter was um, was going to leave to go to college and, you know, leave L.A., and it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't have to be there anymore. Like, I could go home. I hadn't even... In order to sort of cope with being away from home, I'd had to forget about the possibility of going back in a, in a strange yeah. way, like not think about, well, eventually I'll... Because it was almost too difficult to deal with so and then it suddenly occurred to me oh i can i can go home soon um and that kind of coincided with i in 2011 when i did the passion in, in patel but this was a project that i did where i spent about two between two and three years developing it mm. it was a, a ultimately it became one single performance that lasted non-stop for 72 hours in and around the town, working with the community in the town and to tell a story about the town, yeah. really, using the kind of blueprint of the Passion of Christ uh -huh. as a kind of the Easter story, as a kind of a, a way into it for the audience, but essentially it being a contemporary, non-religious story about the town of Port Talbot. Uh, and you directed it and you were in I, it. I, I sort of created it, co-directed it, and was in it. And that was a sort of life-changing experience for me, really. You know, I went back, I lived back at home again for the first time in years and years and years. I, I got an opportunity to kind of have an overview of the community that I had grown up in, in a way that very few people have the chance to. You know, I could be sitting with the mayor of the town in the morning and then at the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Centre in the afternoon, sitting in on a session with someone. You know, like I was... I, getting to see an entire community, like a sort of a, you know, a cross-section of a community at a moment in time, and it massively affected me. And so after that production in 2011, I stayed connected to a lot of the groups that I had got involved with, and um, and it just started to kind of wake me up to the idea that, uh, that there are a lot of people putting a lot of work into keeping communities going um, against really big odds, you know, and, and during a period of austerity policies and all that and things being cut and really hard for people. It's really hard for a lot of people in the community and it's also really hard for people who are trying to help those people as well. And and so I became more and more aware as the years went on that um, that, that was going on uh, and that I uh, had resources that those people didn't have and that they could use, could be useful. So, you know, you know, as I'm sure you, you, you know, you, you get a lot of, as well, people getting in touch saying, "Will you, you know, come and publicise this? Will you put your name to this? Will you?" And so I was doing a lot of that, and it just wasn't enough. I, I didn't want to just put my name to something or have a photograph. I wanted, I wanted to get more involved, and uh, and you know, you also start to realise that. Uh, having a kind of media platform is one of the most beneficial things that anyone can have um, to allow not only your voice to be heard, but other people's voices to be heard and to draw attention to certain things that, you know, people, are, other people are spending massive amounts of money to try and have the opportunity to do. We get sort of for free in a way. So that's a resource. I also had my own money. So I, that was another resource I had. And, um, 
and so I, I started to feel more and more of a sense of I want to do more than this. I want to get more involved. I, I, if, if people like myself who come from areas that have a lot of challenges and do well aren't prepared to help, then who, who's going to do it? You know, like, it just seemed like not only did I have a responsibility or a duty, but I, I actively wanted to get more involved. At the same time, I was aware of, you know, oh, well, here's another bloody lovey lefty actor yeah. wanting to get, you know. Because an actor who takes a stand is an easy target because yeah. you, you, you we're, we pretend to be other people for a living. It's, a, yeah. it's sort of a bit silly. Yeah. And when you go out there and you state yourself to a, an opinion and a, a side of an argument, have you had to endure a lot of that? Have you? Is it is it something you've developed a thick skin about? Or, I mean, I think the people who probably experience most of that kind of stuff are people from various ethnic minorities, people from different religious backgrounds, and women. That's you know they just get right, it right. So anything I've had is tiny and minuscule right. in comparison to that. But yeah, you do get a bit of it, and I understand it. You know, there's a lot about celebrity, not about being an actor necessarily, but celebrity yeah. that is bollocks yeah, and sure. a- a- absolute bullshit, as as you know, and is seen f- to be that, and that can leak into how people feel about you as an actor if you have some of that celebrity or whatever. And there is a lot of people who, maybe with all the best intentions, do get involved in certain things, but in a very sort of superficial way. And and I think a lot of people really do want to do good and and to use what you know what, what celebrity they have for for good but it is demanding you know like if you are going to do stuff sure. if you want to make yeah. some kind of a difference then it does demand certain things and um uh, and so i i get why people are suspicious and i get why people are quick to criticize or whatever and i came to the conclusion of well that's fair enough and i i should be judged by what I actually do, you know, and and the time I give it, and and eventually, you know, if I if I'm if it's just a sort of fly by night thing, then people are absolutely right to criticize me in that way. Um, I hope that people, if they are critical, criticize the reality. That's what really gets to me, I suppose, is when um, people just assume things, or you know, when newspapers report in certain ways, and it's just lies. It's just yeah. not true, and then that becomes the thing that people attack you for. And, and then you spend time fighting fires that have no cause to exist. Exactly. Yeah. And just for people who don't know, did tell us a bit about your childhood and the area you grew up in. And so I uh, it was industrial. Yeah. So I grew up in in Port Albert in South Wales. Uh, probably mainly known for the steelworks mm-hmm. that's there, but within the kind of South Wales area that was the kind of uh, heartlands of the Welsh mining community, a slightly different tradition within that area is also acting, weirdly. So Richard Burton came from Ben, which was in that area. Anthony Hopkins came from Taibach, which is also in that area. So there's this other sort of st- strand of, of the area which is to do with acting, and I very much was focused on that part of it rather than the other part of it so there were precedents around it, it wasn't exactly, such an yeah. odd thing exactly. even though it's a it's an industrial community there were it was you weren't it wasn't a, you weren't a weirdo for wanting no. to become an actor so be, yeah wanting to be an actor had as much kind of nobility to it then yes. as uh, as also maybe wanting to go and play rugby or wanting to work in the steelworks or you know and weren't you also going to be a footballer briefly uh, that was uh, yeah that was my big obsession before acting became the obsession right. so uh, you know when I was at my peak at 12 right and it was downhill from there really as a football player but that uh, that was everything I thought about that was everything I but loved you could up have... until that point uh, go on to the Arsenal youth team, is that right? I got the opportunity to go and play for the Arsenal youth team. And what yeah, happened? Yeah. Um, it, well, it would have meant going and living in London when I was 12. Right. And my mum and dad were like, well, no, you can't do that. And we're not moving to London. So that didn't happen. Were you angry at them? Uh, I didn't, I wasn't supposed to know about it. Ah. Uh, but I overheard them. We'd gone on holiday to Pontins on the Isle of Wight. For anyone who doesn't know what Pontins is, it was a sort of holiday camp place that um, people go to. And we'd that gone probably there. makes it sound grander than maybe <laughs> yeah, it maybe, is. Maybe. Yeah. I loved it. It right. was the greatest yeah. holiday I did. Well, we went to Butland when I was about the same age and we yeah, loved it. Yeah. Absolutely I, well, brilliant. I loved it. I don't think my, the rest of my family did. <laughs> Um, and, and it just so happened that whilst we were there, um, a very uh, someone who came to become a very very famous football player, Tony Adams, was there. He was only about fifteen at the time, I think. And his he was there with his father having a holiday. And his father was someone who was you know worked sort of as a scout for Arsenal. Uh-huh. And so he saw me playing there, and, and then arranged a series of games. And ultimately went up to my dad and said, you know, I think he should come and become part of the youth team at, at Arsenal. How do you th- feel about that? And so I didn't know about this. Right. And then we came home from the holiday and I overheard my 
parents telling friends of theirs about this. And so I was simultaneously elated at this news and really crestfallen that it right. wasn't happening, you know. And he stayed in touch for a little while and got me trials for, like, local teams. But it was just at the point then, really, when I was sort of switching over to getting interested in acting. More. I see. Yeah, so then right. I... And then my obsession, and it was obsessive with the football, then eventually turned into towards the acting and I, and I went off down that route. And what did your parents think of that as a... Well, I think they were both uh, really pleased because... We'd had this kind of tradition in the family of getting involved in in theatrical stuff and and going further back into my family tradition there were there's essentially two strands there was the religious strand of preachers and people having kind of conversions in the gutter when they see God speaking to them through the moon i mean all that stuff. <laughs> wow. And then another aspect, which was um, uh, carnival folk, fairground folk, traveling people yeah, going right. on the fairground. So, and they sort of converged at a certain point. Um, and, and I think it sort of ended up being um, this amateur theatrics thing that my family were kind of into. And then, and then I was, I suppose, the first person then who, who kind of took that a bit Were further. you doing the amateur dramatics as a kid? Uh, no, I was just going and watching it. Right. Although I was in a production of Camelot, when I was about 12, right. uh, as Tom of Warwick, because my dad was in it uh, at the Mellon Operatic Society in, ne- in Glenneath, and they needed a young lad to essentially be told the story of Camelot to by King Arthur, because that King, the Camelot is a sort of flashback. Ah, uh, I see. Uh, and so I, I became Tom of Warwick in my green tights when I was 12. <laughs> and my dad likes to cite this as, and that's what did it. Right. I didn't. Right. Um, but So that was my only time of actually being involved in it. But so, I was and your mum and dad were both in the troupe? My, my dad was at that point, my mum wasn't, but they both had been. They'd met through, well, they'd got involved in amateur dramatics when they were very young and their families had been involved in it as well. So it was sort of in the family, you know. Were they good? Are they, are they still doing it uh, now? My dad, no, my mum hasn't done it for many years. My dad has stayed involved. Uh-huh. In fact, one of the kind of tragedies of, of uh, you know, of what's happened over the, however many years is, is amateur, opera, amateur operatic societies performed a really great social function in, in smaller sure. communities, you know. And for people to, you know, it wasn't just about people wanting to be actors. It was about coming together, you know. It was something that people were able to come together and, and do something that they enjoyed and have a kind of cyclical thing to it, but about a sense of community. And that has got really affected over the last few years as well and, and that's really sad. And my dad has been involved in in, in keeping that going in our local area. Um, but his his main thing uh, for many years was, well I say main thing, the thing he got the most pleasure out of for yes. many years uh, yes. was that he was one of the world's number one Jack Nicholson lookalikes. Yeah, he certainly, yes, yeah. and he's, he's yeah. a double. Yeah, well he was, yeah. There was a window of opportunity which he made the most of. Right. Um, that window oh, is, is he, now is, closed. Uh, oh, has he no, does he no longer resemble No Jack? longer, no. Not really. I mean, I mean, he could, I suppose, but I mean, now it would require so much dyeing of hair and I stuff see. like that. And he's well, just, I'm sure Jack's not a stranger oh, to yeah. the dye brush. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, so my dad had to sort of let that go. How did that come about? Did that? Did your becoming an actor allow him to think that was something no, he might do? My or? dad has always been a frustrated performer. Right. He would have loved to have become an actor himself. Right. Um, I, He's just not very good, um, unfortunately. <laughs> I know. So his enthusiasm. Would you say that to his face? I would. Oh. His enthusiasm and his, you know, his passion for it and his enjoyment of it is total. His ability is less than total. Oh. Um, but he loves to be involved. And so when I went to drama school, uh, I think the first Tim Burton Batman film came out. Jack Nicholson was playing the Joker. Sure. There was a lot of, do you look like the Joker going on at the time in, you know, newspapers and stuff. And people just started coming up to my dad in the street going, you really look like the Jack Nicholson. So he'd never noticed it before. No. And he didn't know who Jack Nicholson was at that point. He Brilliant. thought it was the golfer, Jack Nicholas. Very good. Um, and so he had to sort of ask me who he was, really. Yeah. And then and then he said, Michael, will you, uh, will you take some pictures of me for this competition in the paper? Uh, which I did. And he won the competition. He got an agent. Right. And then he started working all over the world, doing like... And what sort of stuff would he do? Well, he would... One week he might be um, down at Madame Tussauds, right. pretending to be the waxwork of Jack Nicholson, and then jumping out at people every now and again. The next, oh. the next week he might be at a at a premiere 
of a film and stepping out onto the red carpet and pretending to be Jack. Or and people thought he was Jack yeah. Nicholson. Empire Magazine, I remember at one point, did a thing where they took lookalikes around different parts of London to see if people's reactions. My dad caused a riot in Leicester Square. Um, he had been. He was flown out to Germany at one point for the premiere of a Jack Nicholson film, and he thought he was just going to be part of the entertainment. And when he got there, they said, "Jack hasn't turned up. You're going to actually be Jack." Wow. So my dad suddenly was staying in the hotel suite that Jack would have stayed in, (laughs) which was a new experience for my father, and ended up doing a radio interview as Jack. Can he do the voice? No, not at all. So he did it in broad Welsh? Uh, He had a go. Right. The voice. But uh, during the break, the German radio guy said, you're not Jack Nicholson, are you? And my dad goes, even better than the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which he had business cards made out of. Meirik Sheen, <laughs> even better than the real thing. I, I've always said what he what he lacks in specificity, uh, he makes up for in commitment. Wow. So he gives it 150%. Uh, so he did all kinds of stuff. And, you know, and there would be like Christmas parties, business parties, where they do an awards thing for their employees and they get Jack Nicholson, right, Marilyn Monroe right. and the Queen sure. or whatever. You know. uh, so he did a lot of that kind of stuff. And this is all happening. You're... An earnest drama student yeah. wanting to become Olivier, and suddenly your dad yeah. is trolling around pretending so to be Jack I went, I Are went, you thrilled by that or embarrassed by that? I was just sort of bemused by it. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. I remember my dad coming down to London one time to meet to see his agent. Uh, and he said, Michael, uh, will you come with me to the agent? Uh, I need to pick up some photographs or whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah. So I come with him, I go into the agency, and I can see his agent looking at me. And uh, we're just about to leave. And we're just going out the door, and the agent goes, James Dean. I said, I'm sorry, what? I could get you work as James Dean. (laughs) (laughs) I said, thank you very much, but I'm fine. Uh, You're not tempted? I've always thought about what could have happened. What could have happened? Sliding doors. What might have happened, yeah. Um, But I love the idea that lookalike agents see the entire world as possible lookalikes for people. But then, of course, and then in a weird twist to that, you've a, a, a large seam <laughs> of your career has been playing real people. That is Not true. that you necessarily look like, but that yeah. you've, you've cornered a market in, in <laughs> Tony Blair, Kenneth Williams, Brian Clough. David Frost. David Frost. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah, I know. In a strange twist of fate. Yes. Yeah. My dad likes to take credit that um, it was his work as a lookalike for Jack Nicholson right. that led to me. Yes. Doing that. And yet it's a different process. It sort of is. Yes. yes. I'd, I'd like to think it is. Do you yeah. have a specific, when, you, when you've come to do those real people, is you, do you have a different process to approaching that, to approaching Hamlet or well, Caligula or Amadeus? Well, or... only in so much as um, that you know part of the kind of toolkit that you've got for that is that you know that the audience are familiar with the person. Yes. So, you know, when you play a made-up character, you know, the audience aren't going in there going, well, we know what this character is like. Yeah. Whereas if you're playing Brian Clough, part of the kind of draw for an audience is, oh, I wonder if he's going to be like it, all that kind of stuff. So you have to meet that in some way. You don't necessarily have to be exactly like them, but you've got to answer that in some way. So I feel like... However you do it, within the first couple of minutes, you have to allow an audience to feel comfortable that you're playing that person. Now, the way of making them feel comfortable might be to go, I'm not going to be like them at all. Right. You know, I'm not even doing a voice. You know, There's different ways of making an audience potentially comfortable. Um, and all the ones I've done have been you know, uh, essentially going, I, I want you to feel like I'm close enough yes. that you can go, okay, I'll relax about this. I- with all four of those characters, have you have you done a similar? Have you started with a similar process? Yeah, uh, yes, I suppose so. I, I've 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 always kind of thought about it like um, I, I spend the first period of time just totally immersing myself in in that person and any recordings of them, film of them, anything that's written about you know, just get as much stuff as possible, and without really trying to think about it or or trying to do a voice or anything, just like just surround yourself in right. in them 
uh, I always sort of talk about it like just take a bath in them (laughs) and then let certain things come out of that. So points of connection start to come out or, uh, you know, something. I'll be reminded of something. So, for instance, with Clough, one of the first things that started to sort of occur to me before thinking about doing a voice or looking like him or anything like that, one of the first things was, oh, this is a bit like a cult. That when he's most successful with a team, it's because it's sort of cultish that these are people who are not at the top of their game. These are people who've been sort of rejected or on the out, you know, they're not players that have been uh, lauded. And him and Taylor are very clever at finding these people who have certain qualities but are kind of underrated and bringing them together and then totally dominating them and getting them to be, you know, either terrified or so respectful or so in awe of this huge personality, dominating personality, that they will do anything. And out of that comes this extraordinary success. And he did that a few times. And the time it didn't work was with Leeds because those Leeds players were all at the top of their game. They weren't the rejects. They weren't the outsiders. They were absolutely... You know they were at the, at the forefront of the, of the of the sport, and so that so that took me down a path of looking at cults and cult leaders. So that's not right. that is a similar thing to playing a fictional character in that you know you you look for things that are just associations. Yeah, yeah. So there's still that aspect to playing the real person, but you always at some point have to address how am I going to listen, yes. and sound, and look and act like them. That is terrifying, and each time I've done it, it's got to a couple of days before. Like the honeymoon period is really early on when there's months before you have to actually do it and you just kind of enjoy it and you think, oh, this is grand. I'm just loving finding out about this person. And then the shit hits the van when it gets closer and you think, oh, I actually have to do this now. People are going to be sitting there watching me and thinking, yeah, no, he's not very like him, is he? Yeah. No, that's not right. And that really becomes terrifying. And every single time I've gone, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's, we're going to have to cancel it. It's not just being like a Rory Bremner or a, or a yeah. Steve Coogan doing a, an accurate impression. It's It's got to connect on a slightly different level. Well, that's it? what I mean about the point is that you've got to very early on get the audience comfortable enough to forget about yes. it. Yes. Like once they go, oh, no, I buy this, yeah. Then they're just on the journey with you, you know, and then it's like anything else. You know, all you really want with an audience when you're telling a story is for them to lose themselves yeah. in the story. You don't want them in every scene going, oh, he wasn't like him then. Oh, he's very like him there. Yeah. You, don't, you know, that would be the worst thing yeah. in a way is for an audience to constantly be thinking how much you are like the person. You don't want them to think yeah. about it at all. So you have to meet that need at the very beginning and somehow try and let go of that. And part of I th- what I found in getting the audience to let go of that, is for you to let go of that. Mm, So that means you have to do a lot of work beforehand because you've got to get to the point where you're not thinking about it. Yeah. uh, And then it allows the audience to not think about it. Mm. But you've also got to get to the point where you're still very like the person, but you're just not thinking about it like that. So that's the challenge. Tony Blair was the first one you did, is that right? Or was Kenneth Williams first? No, Tony Blair was the first one, yeah. Up to that point, had you had a sort of capacity for... No. Absolutely not. You I was not. Used to, you used to do impressions of no, people. No, I was not the person who did impersonations of the teacher or right. of friends. I, I mean, nothing at all. So like why that. did they come to you for it? Uh, or why did you think you could do it? I so I when my daughter was very young, uh, and I'm sure this is something that everyone with kids will recognise. Um, she would want, she, you know, she would whatever. Disney film she was watching at the time. I remember yeah. uh, Beauty and the Beast was uh-huh. a big deal for her. Um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was was one. Uh, Monsters Inc was another. And she would want me to do the characters, the voices. She would want to tell the story again, like a bath time or going right. to bed or whatever. And uh, and so I would, you know, and I would. I'm an actor. Yeah. I would do the voices. Rise to the challenge. Yeah, I would do the voices a little bit. And I remember thinking at a certain point. I think it was when I was doing. All Seven Dwarves from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. It was actually Monsters, Inc. I remember doing Mike and Sully from Monsters, Inc. I'm thinking, this is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I've got pretty close after weeks and weeks of it, you know. Because my daughter, I've always, I always thought my daughter was totally non-judgmental about this. And uh-huh. it was just like, so because she wasn't, I didn't feel self-conscious about it. Yeah, sure. And, I, and through repetition, I realized that I was actually quite good at it. Turns out my daughter was very judgmental about oh. it because <laughs> eventually she'd say, don't do the voices, Daddy. Oh, dear. Oh, that was oh, like heartbreaking. A knife to the yeah, heart. don't do the voices, Daddy. She just got embarrassed. 
by me oh. doing the voices. Um, but uh, but I've always said that that was part of what gave me the confidence, <laughs> and it is actually true. Right. But then, in terms of people being interested in me doing it, um, it was I was. Uh, I was watching a play, I remember, and it was the interval, and I was just standing around in the interval, and uh, this woman comes up to me and says, um, "Hello, Michael. Uh, I'm. Uh, my name's Leo. I'm uh, uh, Stephen Frears, casting director. He's making a love story about Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, and I think you are Tony Blair." So it was Leo Davis's idea. Yeah. And then she and I was like, "All right." I, I mean, I thought this crazy woman had come up to me. Yeah. I didn't know what she was talking about—a love story. I like, "What are you talking?" Yeah. About? And I was like, "Yeah, all right, whatever." And then, um, and then the next thing, I get a call from my agent saying um, Stephen Frears wants to meet you. And I'd, I'd worked the very first film I'd ever done was a film with Stephen Frears called Mary Riley with right. Julia Roberts, but the Jekyll and Hyde story. Yes, yes, yes. And I played a, a small part in that, so I knew him. A bit. And I always remember then he'd said to me at the end of that, he said, you know, one day we'll do something a bit more substantial together. Uh, and I was like, yeah, right. Okay, great. Uh, and so so it wasn't like I was meeting a stranger, but I remember going and meeting him and sitting there and he just sort of looked at me for ages and I felt really uncomfortable. And then he said, yeah, all right, you're Blair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. You didn't have to prove anything. <laughs> no. And uh, and then it turned out, given that was... So that was the first time I ever worked with Peter Morgan. So Peter Morgan, this was a thing called The Deal, mm-hmm. which was on Channel 4, and it was about the supposed deal that Blair and Brown made yeah. together uh, in the Granita restaurant in Islington. Um, and uh, Peter Morgan wrote it. And, of course, after that, I went on then to work with Peter m- many, many times. He wrote all the Blair ones. He yeah. wrote Frost Nixon. He wrote Damned United. You know, he's yeah. now written The Crown. Yes. So, you know, that's Peter Morgan. Uh, and But at the time... He had written this thing, The Deal, and it was about Blair and Brown. And then Stephen Freer says to him, so I found Blair, uh, but he's playing Caligula at the moment, so we're going to have to move our dates. And apparently Peter Morgan was like, who the fuck is this guy <laughs> who is now making me... Ch-? Like, So he hated me to begin with, Peter. Right. Um, and so it was sort of ironic that then when we uh, did work together, we ended up... He had such a profound effect on my life. Tell me about Neil Gaiman then, because he's in that well, category he's as well, them, right? Yeah. So this is what has brought us together yes. into the uh, the new love story for the 21st century. Exactly. <laughs> um, so so I, when I went to drama school, uh, there was a guy called Gary Turner in my year. And within a first few, first few weeks, uh, we were doing something, having a drink or whatever. And he said to me, uh, do you read comic books? And I said, no. I mean, this is what, 88, 88, 89. So it was... Now I know that it was a period of time that was like a big change, transformation going through comic books, you know, Uh rather than it being thought of as just superheroes and Batman and Superman, there was this whole new era of uh, a generation of writers like Grant Morrison. Was the the kids who'd grown up reading comic books were now making comic books. Yeah, yeah. And starting to address different kinds of subjects through the comic book medium. So it wasn't about just superheroes. It was all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Really fascinating stuff. And I, I was totally unaware of this um and so this guy gary said to me uh, do you read him and i said no and he went right okay here's the watchman by alan moore here's uh, swamp thing here's uh, hellblazer and here's sandman and sandman was neil gaiman's mm. kind of big series mm. that um that sort of put his name on the map and uh, and i read all those and just i was blown away by all of them but particularly the sandman stories because it was he was sort of drawing on mythology which was something i was really interested in and fairy tales folklore and and philosophy and all kind like and shakespeare and all kinds of stuff were being kind of mixed up in this story and i absolutely loved it um so i became a big fan of neils and started reading everything by him and then fairly shortly after that within six months to a year good omens the book came out which neil wrote with terry pratchett Mm -hmm. and so i got the book because i was obviously a big fan of neil's by this point read it loved it then started reading terry pratchett stuff as uh, as well because i didn't know his stuff before then um and and then spent years and years and years just you know being a huge fan of both of them and then eventually, when I'd, I'd, you know, I'd done films like the Underworld films and doing Twilight films, and I think it was one of the Twilight films, um, there was a lot of very snooty 
interviews that happened where the you know people who considered themselves well above talking about things like Twilight were having to interview you know me and weirdly coming at it from the attitude of clearly this is below you as well like, right. kind of like weirdly thinking yeah. I'm going to go yeah fucking Twilight you know and and I just used to go you know you know what uh, some of the greatest writing of the last you know, 50 to 100 years has happened in science fiction or fantasy. You know, I mean, like Philip K. Dick is one of my favorite writers of all time. In fact, the production of Hamlet I did was mainly influenced by Philip K. Dick. Right. Um, and, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin and Asimov, all these amazing people. And I talked about Neil as well. And, uh, and so I went off on a bit of a rant in this interview. Anyway, the interview came out, blah, blah, blah. About six months later, maybe, uh, knock on the door, open the door. Delivery of a big box. That's interesting. Open the box. There's a card at the top of the box. I open the card. Uh, it says, uh, from one fan to another, Neil Gaiman. And inside the box are, like, first editions of Neil stuff and all kinds of interesting, you know, things d- by Neil. And he just sent this stuff. You've never me. met him? Never met him. He'd read the interview or someone had, uh, you know, let him know about mm-hmm. this interview where I'd sung his praises and yeah. stood up for, you know, him and the people who work within that sort of genre as being like, you know... Yeah. And uh, and he just got in touch. We met up for the first time when he came to. I was in Los Angeles at the time, and he came to L.A. and we uh, and he said um, he said I'll take you for a meal. I said, All right. He said, Do you want to go somewhere posh or somewhere interesting? I, I said, Let's go somewhere interesting. Yeah. She said, Right. I'm going to take you to this restaurant called The Hump, and it's at Santa Monica Airport, and it's a sushi restaurant. I was like, Right, okay. So we got. So I. I had a Mini at the time, and we get in my Mini, and we drive off to uh, Santa Monica Airport, and we and this restaurant was right on the tarmac. Like, you could sit in the restaurant. There's nobody else there when we got there. We got there quite early. And you're watching the planes landing on Santa Monica Airport. It's, like, hey. extraordinary. And uh, the chef comes out, and Neil says, um, just bring us whatever you want. Chef's choice. Just bring... Okay, so I didn't. I'd never really eaten sushi before. So we sit there. We had this incredible meal where they keep bringing these, you know, dishes out, and they say, uh, uh, "This is blah blah blah." Just use a little bit of uh, soy sauce or whatever. You know, this is eel. This is blah, blah. and then there was this one dish where they brought out and they didn't say what it was. It's was like mystery dish. We had it delicious. Anyway, we, uh, a few more people started coming into the restaurant as time went on. And we'd sort of get in the end. I said, Neil, I can't eat anymore. I'm going to have to stop now. This is great, but I can't eat. Right, okay, we'll, we'll ask for the bill in a minute. And then the door opens and some very official people come in. And it was the feds. And the feds came in because they, and we knew they were because they had jackets on that said they were part of the, you know, Federal Bureau of whatever. Yeah. And uh, about six of them come in. Two of them go, one goes behind the counter. One, Two go into the kitchen. One goes to the back. They've all got like guns on yeah. and stuff. And uh, me and Neil are like, what on earth is going on? And then eventually one guy goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you haven't ordered already, uh, please leave. If you're still eating your meal, please finish up, pay your bill, leave. And we were like, oh, my God, are we going to, like, are we poisoned? Is there some terrible thing that's happened? So we sort of, we'd finish, so we, we sort of pay our bill. And then all the kitchen staff are brought out. And the, the head chef is there. The guy who's been bringing us this food, yeah. and he's in tears, and he and he says to Neil, "I'm so sorry." He apologizes to Neil, and we leave. We have no idea what's what happened. But you're assuming it's the mystery dish. Well, we're assuming that uh, we can't be gonna. We can't be. It can't be poisonous. You know what I mean? It can't no. be that there's terrible, terrible things. So the next day was the Oscars, which is why Neil was in town because Coraline had been uh, nominated okay. for an Oscar. Best documentary that year was won by The Cove which was by a team of people who had uh, come across um, dolphins being killed, I think. And, okay. and, and turns out what was happening at this restaurant was that they were having illegal endangered species flown in to the airport and then being brought round the back of the restaurant into the kitchen. We, we had eaten whale, endangered species whale. Wow. That was the mystery dish that they didn't say what it was. And the team behind the cove were behind this sting and they took them down that night whilst we were there. And we That's didn't find this out for months. So for months, me and Neil were like, 
have you worked anything out? Yeah, have you heard anything? No, I haven't heard anything. And then we heard that it was like something to do with the cove. And, and then we eventually found out that that restaurant, they were all arrested, the restaurant was shut down, and uh, it was wow. because of that. And we'd eaten whale that night. And that was your first meeting with Neil Gaiman? That was my first meeting. And also, in the drive home that night from that restaurant, he said, and we were in my mini, he said, have you found the secret compartment? I said, what are you talking about? Such a Neil Gaiman thing to say. Isn't it? Have you found, oh, the secret compartment? Yeah, the, each mini has got a secret compartment. I said, I, I, I had no idea, it's secret. And he pressed a little button and a thing opened up and it was a secret compartment in my own car that Neil Gaiman showed me. Was there anything inside it? <laughs> yeah, there was a little man <laughs> yeah. and he jumped out and went, hello! <laughs> uh, no, there was nothing in there. There was afterwards because I started putting... Sure, in. that's yeah. a very yeah. Neil Gaiman story. All yeah. of that is such a Neil Gaiman Isn't story. It? That's how it yeah. began, yeah. Uh, and then he came to offer you the part uh, in Good Omens. Yeah, well, all these years we later. Became, yeah, we became friends, and we would, you know, whenever he was in town, we would meet up, and um, uh, and, and yeah, and um, and then eventually he started. He said, you know, I'm I'm working on an adaptation of Good Omens, and like I remember at one point Terry Gilliam was going to maybe make a, a film of it, and I remember yes. being there with Neil and Terry when they were talking about it. And, uh, Were you involved at that point? No, no, I wasn't involved. I just happened to have met up with Neil that day. Right. And then Terry Gilliam came along and they were, ch- you know, that was the day they were talking about that or whatever. Um, and then eventually he sent me um, one of the scripts for the uh, one, uh, an early draft of like the first episode of Good Omens. And he said, you know, and we started talking about me being involved in doing it. He said, you know, would you be interested? In I was like, yeah, of course I would. Oh, my God. And he said, well, I'll send you, you know, the scripts when they come and I would read them and we talk about him a little bit and so I you know so I sort of was involved mm. and um but it was always at that point with the idea because he'd always said you know t- about playing Crowley in it and uh and so I so uh, you know and as time went on as I was reading the scripts I was thinking I, I don't think I can play Crowley <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it. and I started to get a bit nervous because I thought I don't want to tell Neil that I don't think I can do this, but I I just felt like I I don't think I can play Crowley. Of course you can play Crowley. Well, I, I just on a sort of on on a gut level, you know. Sometimes you have it on a gut sure, level. You sure, go, sure. I can do this. Yeah. Or I can, or I, or the, I can't do this. And I just thought, you know what? That's this is not the part for me. Like the other part is better for me. I think. I think I can do that. I don't think I could do that. And but I was scared to tell Neil because I thought, well, he wants me to play Crowley, and, and you know and. And then it turned out he had been feeling the same way right. as well. And he, he hadn't wanted to mention it to me, but he was like, I think Michael should really play Aziraphale. And neither of us would bring it up. And then eventually we did, and it was one of those things where you go, oh, thank God you said that. Right. Oh, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think within a fairly short space of time, he said, um, I think we've got David Tennant <laughs> for Crowley. And we both got very excited about that. And then all these extraordinary people started yeah. to join yeah. on. And then, uh, and then off we that's, went. What's well, the other it. thing about Neil? He collects people, doesn't he? Yeah. So he'll just go, oh, yeah, I phoned up Frances McDormand. She's yeah. up for it. Yeah. You go, well, wait, what? Yeah. I emailed John Hamm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you realise how beloved he is uh, and how yes. beloved his work is. And I think we would both recognise that Good Omens is one of the most beloved of all of Neil's stuff. Yes. And, has, and, has, and had never been turned into anything. Yeah. And so the kind of responsibility of that. I mean, for me, for someone who has been a fan of him and a fan of the book for so yeah. long, you know, I can empathise with all the fans out there who are like, oh, they better not fuck this up. Yeah. And this had better yeah. be good. And, all. and I have that part of me. But then, of course, the other part of me is like, but I'm the one who might be fucking it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel that responsibility as well. But we have Neil on side. Yes. Well, Neil being the showrunner. Yeah, I think, I think it, it takes made a the massive curse difference. Yeah, it? yeah. You feel like you're in safe hands. Well, then. we think not that the world has seen it yet. No, I know. But it was a. It's been a. It's been a joy to work with you on it. Oh my goodness! Uh, I can't wait for the world to see it. Oh well, I mean, I, it's the only. You know, I've done a few things where, you know, there are two people. It's a bit of a double act. You yeah. know, like Frost Nixon or sure. even the Queen, I suppose, in some ways. But and I've done it. You know, Amadeus or whatever. This is the only thing I've done. Where I I really don't think of it as my character or you know my performance as that character. I think of it totally as us, yes. the two of us. Yes, like they they do, I, what I do is defined by what you do, and yeah, and and that and that was such a joy to have that experience, and and it it made it so much easier in a way as well. I I found because you don't feel like you're on your own in it, like it's totally us together doing this, and the two characters totally complement each other, and and the experience of doing it 
was just a, a real joy. Yeah. Well, I hope the world is as excited to see it as we are <laughs> to talk about it, frankly. <laughs> you know, there's, um, having talked about T.S. Eliot earlier, there's another bit from The Wasteland where there's a line which, which goes, um, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. And uh, this is how I think about life now. There is so much in life, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what, you know, where you've got, uh, what you've done, how much money you've got, all that. Life's hard. I yeah. mean, like, you can, you know, it, it can take you down at any point. You have to find this stuff. You have to, like, find things that will, these fragments that, that you hold to yourself, they become like a life raft, you know, and especially as time goes on, I think. You know, as I've got older, I've realised it is a thin line between being you know surviving this life and going under and the things that keep you afloat are these fragments these things that are meaningful to you and and what's meaningful to you will be not meaningful to someone else you know but whatever it is that matters to you it doesn't matter what it was you were into when you were a teenager a kid it doesn't matter what it is go and find them and find some way to like hold them close to you make it like go and get it because those are the things that keep you afloat they really are like Doing that with him or, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's, uh, these are the fragments that have shored against my ruin. Absolutely. That's lovely. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. For talking today and for being here. Ah, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced and edited by James Deacon. Additional production from Chris Skinner, Steve Ackerman, Sarah Camlet, Paul Ruist, Tom Koenig and Georgia Tennant. Imagine a world, a world just like our own, but importantly, not our own. Is it the alternate dimension, or are we? And does it have podcasts? The Last Post. Hi, I'm Alice Fraser, bringing you daily news from a parallel universe. It's a sweet, sweet dose of satirical news coverage, some of which will sound pretty familiar. He defended him, saying he broke the lockdown rules on a father's instinct. And I just think if Boris had shielded his as much as he's shielding Cummings, he might actually be in a position to give parenting tips. And some of it is just... Pretty weird. Air in space is becoming much clearer, Alice. And it's quite shocking <laughs> because there is no air in space. It's empty space. So join me every single day alongside great comedians from around the world, including Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Tiff Stevenson and Will Anderson. Good luck to you.